You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. My kids love board games, like this guy right here. You know this game? I, I have a love-hate relationship with Monopoly, um, mostly because it just takes forever to play, but my kids love it, so I love to get into it with them. I love to play the game, and it's funny when you get this game out, uh, you know, you just you start out with, with such enthusiasm. You get the game board out, and everybody's fighting over who's going to be what piece, by the way. I'm the shoe, okay? And uh, I don't know who you are. Maybe you're the car or the top hat, and they got that new one. Is it the money bag? Is that the new one? And, and you, got, you got the board set up, and everybody's divvying up money. And what's really cool about this game is when you first start, you get all this money, and you feel like a millionaire. And I think, if I'm correct, I think you only start with like $1,500. Is that right? But you feel like it's so much because, I mean, it's, it's, it's gold. It's just golden money. And so there's just money, and you're going to get it to roll the dice, and then as you play... You know, you get to move around the board, and you start picking up all this property. And the whole goal is what? To own the whole world and stuff. Like, that's your goal. You want to get in, you want to own the whole world, and then you want to make all of your friends be completely poor and desolate, which is kind of sad, but that's the point of the game. Now, we get pretty competitive at my house when it comes to games. Not because we don't get ugly, but the whole point of playing games is to win. Like, you don't be like, hey, you want to play a game? Yeah, I was hoping I could lose. You know, it's like, no, we, we play games because we want to win the game, and it's fun to win a game, and there's like, I guess, some sort of, I don't know, self-encouragement thing that happens there, and you can win a game. But when we start to play this game Monopoly, something begins to happen. As we pile up all this wealth and, and all this property, and you start to own the power company and like three or four railroad lines, you're feeling pretty powerful. Uh, what comes to light is how serious we take it, and reality is just a game. Now, the cool thing is this. It's one opportunity in life, games like this, is where we get to ask ourselves kind of rhetorically this question. What if money were no object? What would I do? What would I do if, like, I could just keep on, you know, I just, you know, it could be a big deal if we ran out of money and we had to, like, mortgage our house so that we could uh, buy a railroad company, like, we wouldn't really do that in real life, but in a game, it's like, oh, sweet, no, no, I need $75, sweet, you're gone, park place, you know, whatever, what if money were no object, what would we do with it, how would we treat it, after all, it is just a game, but here's the reality, money is not just a game, is it, like, we all have it, we all have to deal with it, it's a real part of our real life that we have to manage in a real way, and the truth about money is that it can be a very, very powerful tool, can't it? Like, it can be a very powerful tool for good. Did you know that, uh, I think it was Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation this week, I think that they gave, fifth, let me write this, look at this, make sure I'm right, yeah, $50 million towards a cure for Ebola this past week. That's incredible. $50 million, could, what, if you, what would you do if you had $50 million? Could you just give it away? But that's the, the wealth that they have, and they're able to be generous like that. It, there is power in money to do good things. But you don't have to look far to realize there's also power and money to do bad things. There's corruption. There's greed. In fact, some of the big problems that are caused by money include, you know, discontent and greed and jealousy. These attack us on a personal level because, let's be honest, we like shiny things. And we always want the newer, bigger, better, faster, more awesome thing. And so we sign up. And then what happens is we see that it, is, it exists or that our friends have it or that it's possible. And then this other thing begins to happen that's actually really, really dangerous discontentment. So it's got this power. I want to kind of define the difference between the power that money has to do good and the power that money has to do bad, and I want to call that difference perspective. An unhealthy perspective on money 
can lead us to a dangerous place, and it can lead to problems. I think maybe king of which might be discontentment. You know, when we get to that place of discontentment, we also start to do other dangerous things with our money. We start to make unwise decisions with our money, which leads to probably one of the biggest problems in America with money, which is debt. Did you know that debt.org, by the way, that's a real thing, debt.org, it's a website, debt.org, um, they kind of research debt in America, and this is a statistic I found on there this week, that more than 160 million Americans have credit cards, 160 million Americans have credit cards, the average card holder holds at least three credit cards, and on average, each household with a credit card carries more than $15,000 in credit card bills. And my guess is, as we looked around this room, that you might fall into that category of someone who has at least $15,000 worth of credit card bills. That's, that's a heavy thing that leads to uh, about $11.4 trillion in consumer debt in America right now. Debt, an unhealthy perspective on money, can lead to some dangerous and unhealthy things. It can also lead to relationship problems. Many relationships have been damaged, ruined, or ended because of some misunderstanding about money or borrowing money or borrowing people's stuff. Right, And so this whole idea that money and a bad perspective on it can lead to bad relationships, many marriages have ended largely because the couple couldn't philosophically agree on what to do with their money. And I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I think another problem that money definitely leads to is international problems, right? I mean, you, you don't have to be a genius to understand that he who has the gold, he who has the oil, he who has the, you know, viable natural resource will be the country who is also at war with another country who wants it. Right? And so money with an unhealthy perspective can lead to a bad place. And, and these problems, they lead to something in our life that we've been talking about for, for this past two weeks. Clutter. Clutter. I want to kind of make, make, make the same thing of problems and clutter. The problems that are in our life because of money are clutter problems. And they lead to what is, I believe, the most terrifyingly dangerous thing about money problems. And that's this. We become reliant on money and stuff and resources and material goods so much to the point that we do not seek a reliance on God. We sacrifice a reliance on God or we say it's not even necessary because I can provide for myself. And our money overtakes this need that we have for God to be in our life. All this clutter that we live in, we shouldn't have to deal with it. It shouldn't be something that's there. It shouldn't be present, but it is. And so for this uh, last couple of weeks, we've been talking about breathing room. And, and breathing room, kind of the definition that we've thrown out there for breathing room is this, that we want to be able to clear the clutter from our lives so that we can make space for what matters most. There are a lot of things in our life that we feel like we're kind of drowning under, things that are kind of holding us down, a time that wish we, we wish we could catch our breath. And the question is, how do I catch my breath? Clear the clutter. But I think there are a few things that have so far-reaching implications into our lives as our finances. Because our finances just, they dictate so much of what we're doing. And so if you're looking for breathing room, I want to tell you today that we've got, i got a plan that I've seen in Scripture. And I've seen what God has done for the people who honor him. And I think that there are some principles that we can glean out of what God has to say for us that can really help us find that space. Um, if you're someone who gets a little nervous in your seats when you come to church and you find out somebody's talking about money... Um, psh, I'm right there with you. Like, I hate it. In fact, I believe very thoroughly that money can be talked about in very inappropriate and unhealthy ways, especially at church. Um, but, but that's not what we're doing today. I, I think that it's also important to point out that when Jesus addresses material wealth, it's one of the things he talks about more than anything else because he knows us so well. 
He knows the, the hold that, that money and wealth and material things have on us. And so what he wants us to do is have a proper perspective on these things. And so I don't think you need to worry today about anything inappropriate coming from this stage. I want to talk about it in a healthy and healing way and help us to find some breathing room. And so what we want to do today is find that we can clear the clutter financially. And this is how. By treating money God's way. Clear the clutter financially by treating money God's way. I love to look to the Bible for the answers to life's most important questions. I say that every week, and I think the question, if I had to boil it down this week, is maybe, what does God say about our money? What does he say? And, and to find that out, I kind of went on a journey. Uh, I don't want to just kind of pick one verse out of Scripture and say, this is what we should do. Actually, I went on a journey. If you've got a Bible with you, I want you to go on that journey with me. It's pretty easy. We're going to go to the very first book in the Bible, Genesis. It's the book just about the beginnings of of, uh, of, of life as we know it in creation. We're going to be only in chapter 1 and in verse 1 in Genesis to start with. Because as we look to what God has to say about money, I think first we need to understand what happens as Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we give them away for free. There's some that are scattered among your seats underneath you there. We also have the scripture on the screen behind me. But let me read this to you today. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see that? In the beginning, God created. The first thing that he wants us to know is that he's the source of all things. It all came from me. And it's an excellent place to begin as we begin to build perspective on money, finances, wealth, resources. And so what I want to do is just fast forward through the the book of Genesis uh, chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 26 because this is where mankind comes into the picture. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We'll skip on to verse 28. And it says, God blessed them, talking to the humans, and he said to them, this is what he says to us. He says, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, leave that up there for just a second. Granted, this passage is not about money. In fact, none of the things I've said have been about money. You know why? Because there was no money. Money is man's invention. You know what money is? Like if I had to give it a, a definition, it might be the value that man has assigned to God's creation. We find different ways to kind of categorize how can we equate a value to make exchange of, of goods easier. And so that's what money is all about. This is not about money. This is a passage that's about resources and responsibility. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he looked at mankind and he said, I want you to take care of this. I think it's really cool what God does here. Because it, he kind of does like, he could have done like, like I kind of do with my kids with some things. Like there are some things in my house, I don't have a whole lot of space in my house, it's just mine, but there are some things that are mine. And so I look at my kids and I say, this, this is daddy's. Don't touch it. It's my stuff, right? And God could have done that. He could have been like, this is my stuff. I created this. Don't touch it. But it's just the complete opposite. He says, hey, this is my stuff. I made it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take care of it. I want you to take care of it. This is a passage about resources and responsibility. He says, rule over the fish of the seas and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And what a huge responsibility we have. It's a big deal. There's a word for what God is setting up here. Um, it's, it's an old English word that we get it today. Maybe you've heard it. It's not in big use, but it's still a good, a good word. The word is stewardship. You ever heard that word, stewardship? Stewardship comes from the old English, English I, I think I'm saying this right, stigward, 
stigward, a steward, or it was a stigward, and it was two words. The word stig meant house, and the word ward was like the person that oversees a thing. So you've heard of like a prison warden. The word ward is in there, and they look over the prison. Or like a game warden. They're responsible for looking over, uh, you know, hunting and fishing and things like that. And so the stigward or the steward is the person responsible for looking over the house. And so when this, this word first came into use, basically there were people whose job it was to oversee someone's household. There'd be someone, someone kind of wealthy who had stuff, and they had another person who said, listen, I'm pretty wealthy. I can't take care of everything. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be the steward of my house, of my land, of my property. Will you do that for me? Uh, my wife and I once got a job, uh, just like a, a couple-week job, where we had some friends who had a really nice house, and they went on vacation, and they asked us to come house-sit. You ever done that? You ever heard of that? Like house-sitting is, you know, we, we were responsible for feeding the pets and checking the mail and making sure that the newspapers didn't pile up in the driveway, and, you know, and they said... You, please come and be the steward of our house. Please take care of it. Now, it was a really cool exchange. It wasn't our house, but they trusted us to treat it like it was our house. And so they said, look, this is our house. Come on in. Here's a key. You can eat our food. You can hang out on our couch. You can watch our TV. You can swim in our pool. If you want to spend the night, you can. You can take a shower. You can do whatever you need to do. The thing is, what they expected us to do was to treat the house in a way that was consistent with the way that they would have it treated, right? That's what they expected. Now, we could have invited 50 friends over and had a big old party and, like, ripped the sofa in half and, like, you know, put a bunch of, like, dirt in the pool or something and ruined it. That would have been bad stewardship. But good stewardship is saying, I recognize this is not my house, but I'm going to take care of it the way that you would have me take care of it. It was like it was our house, but it wasn't our house. It was their house. We were the stewards of the house. So when it comes to the resources of the earth, God creates the world. He says, in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. This is all the stuff. But I want you to take care of it. I want you to steward it. I want you to manage it. And I want you to manage it in a way that is consistent with my desires. Which brings up kind of the next question. Well, what, what are God's desires with stuff, with the world? Well, as the story of mankind unfolds in the book of Genesis, you can read through it and you can see uh, it doesn't take long for us to get just in Genesis chapter 4. We get to the first opportunity for us to see some people using their stuff for God in a special way. Maybe you've heard of Cain and Abel. They were the sons of Adam and Eve, and they've got this whole drama. But before all the drama, there was this moment where the drama began. Cain and Abel. So Cain uh, were two brothers. Cain was a shepherd. Abel was a farmer. That was what they did for a living. That's how they, that's how they were subduing the earth. And they both decided that they were going to offer some of what they had raised to God as an offering. And this is really the first time we see humans have the concept of offering. Like if you've been in church long or you've seen... Christians interact, or even just in other religion, there's just this idea of like, I should offer something to God. This is the first time we really see that uh, in history, and so this is kind of what we find out. First of all, we find that Cain, the farmer, he brought some of his fruit to God as an offering. Um, it wasn't a bad offering, uh, apparently, but it also apparently didn't add up, and, and it wasn't as acceptable as maybe what his brother Abel's offering was. So Abel was a shepherd, okay, and it says uh, that he brought, the quote is, fat portions from some of the first fruits of his flock, okay? So you've got Cain, the brother, who's a, far a farmer, and he's brought some kind of fruits and vegetables, I guess, and then you've got Abel, who's brought some choice portions of his meat, like some of the firstborn, some of the nicest livestock that he's got. And then something really interesting happens here. Genesis 4, 4 through 5, it says, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. That's cool, good for Abel. But verse 5, it says, but Cain and his offering he did not look with favor on. 
So, naturally, Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. This is the first time we see people offering some of their hard-earned resources to God as a, as a kind of gift. Not like God needs it. Not like he's like, man, I was looking for some good fat portions of meat. But for some other reason. And he's allowed Cain and Abel to be the stewards of this stuff. And there's a lot of other things we could probably get into about why one gift was more acceptable than the other. But I think what we can do is probably learn some principles that we're going to find in some other scripture that probably did definitely apply to what happened with Cain and the fact that God didn't really look approvingly at his offering. In fact, all through the Old Testament of the Bible, we see this really cool thing happen. There are people who are living for God, and they intentionally set apart a side of their income in service to him. Like as an act of worship, intentionally, whatever resources they manage, whether it's you know, crops or whether it's livestock or whether it's money, because that's what they get paid, that's what they set aside. And here's what we learn. The way that we manage our money, the way that we manage our resources, it says a lot about how much we honor and trust God. It does. And the way we manage our money is a reflection of our heart towards God. In fact, I think that's kind of what we see going on with Cain and Abel there. There was a heart issue happening. We don't get a whole lot of details from the story, but you have to know that's got to be what it is because that's what we see in all the other places in the Bible. And so as we talk about this need for breathing room, what I want to do is look through just a couple of places. As I, as I use the knowledge that I have of reading the Bible and talking to good friends who have a lot of knowledge of the Bible and just reading up on this uh, over the past few weeks, uh, what I want to do is kind of land on three principles that we can see throughout the Bible that seem to be very consistent. That God says, these are the, manage these are the resources I've asked you to manage, and this is how I would like you to manage them. Uh, and, and by the way, this is never going to be a ploy for anybody to say, hey, let's let the church get super rich all the time. Because actually, that should never happen. The church is about constantly sharing, constantly giving, constantly en enriching the community. So these other principles will line up. So here we go. I said this earlier. I want to say it again as we jump in. To find breathing room financially, we've got to learn to manage money God's way. So what is God's way? Three principles I want to lay out. The first one is this. The first principle we see is trust. Trust. If you're a note taker, this is definitely one of the three words you want to write down today. Trust. God's way is all about trusting him. All throughout scripture, no matter what it's talking about, it's like, listen, I want you to trust me. I am reliable. Please rely on me. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. And it's, it's a really interesting way to look at this. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I challenge this. I, I challenge you to challenge this for yourself. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where do you invest your treasures? Your treasures are your time, your, your, uh, your talents, and your resources. These are the things that you have to contribute to the world. Where do you invest those? Is it in your kids? Is it in your job? Is it in your neighborhood? Is it in your hobby? Is it in your, your, your addiction? What is it? Because wherever you invest those things, Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. For God, it's a heart thing. It's a trust thing. The more I study Jesus, the more I realize how much this guy gets us. He knows how tightly we hold on to our physical resources. And he says, hey, I want you to let go. Relax. I got you. Don't put your trust in whether or not you're getting another paycheck. Don't put your trust in what kind of house you live in. Don't put your trust in your material things. What I want you to do is trust me. Live for me, because I am the treasure. If you can invest in me, if I am your treasure, that's where your heart will be, and the rest of it will take care of itself. 
It's about sacrifice. It's about trust. It's about relying on God. And so that first principle, trust, God explains it and explores more. Uh, this is kind of the, the, the classic statement that you can look at at the Bible for how God shows this to the Jewish people uh, in the Old Testament. It's near the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. And the prophet Malachi is kind of teaching God's words. This is what God's laid on his heart, and this is what, uh, this is what God says. Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. This is about trust. He says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room for you to store it all. That sounds fantastic. Like God's just going to open up the store gates of heaven and just shoop, dump it out. That sounds incredible. And God says this. He says this to these Jewish people living under the Jewish law. He says, listen, bring it. I'm telling you, if you will trust me, I will bless you. And he says this concept of a, of a tithe. Maybe you've heard this, this phrase before, the tithe. Um, the tithe is literally... Uh, a mathematical term that means a tenth, and that was what the Jews had decided that they were going to set apart. It was part of their law. They were going to set apart a tenth of their income. A tenth. Think about how much money you bring home every week and say, man, a tenth of that? A tenth to put towards, the, like they did it towards, towards the temple and towards the service in the kingdom. A tenth. Why do you think they chose that? I think it's the principle of trust. And God says, check it out. I'm going to show you that I can do more for you with the 90% that you have left than you could have done with the 100% you had to start with. But he says this, test me in this. Test me. This is the only place in the whole Bible where God says, test me in this and see if I'm joking. Because if you test me in this, I will open up the floodgates of heaven with every blessing that you could imagine. It could be argued, if you've been in church long, you've heard the word tithe before. If you haven't been around church much, you've like maybe heard about it and kind of curious what it's all about. It could be argued that Jesus never once said that Christians should tithe. And you know what I would say to that? That's true. He never said that. He never said that you should try tithe. What he says is, you should trust me with all of you. Every part of you. I want you to love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And he encounters some rich people. One, for example, who was really trying to serve Jesus. And Jesus was like, you know, actually, there's, there's just one thing that you lack. It's that you're relying on your money and not on me. And so here's what I need you to do. I need you to sell everything, not just 10%, 100%. So that, and give it to the poor so that I can know that you're trusting me. More than a percentage, God is interested in your trust and your heart. And so that's kind of where that comes from. And we see that time and time again throughout the Bible. He said, I'm, I'm, I want you to trust me. Now, I want to say this to those who might be in the room, and, and I tend to be one of them. You might be a little suspicious about giving to church. Um, you know what? I understand. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Don't give up on the blessings that God says he can bless you with. I want to encourage you to trust God. And so Find some other Jesus-centered thing that you can trust God with your money with. I, I can hook you up with people from Nourish NC or Vigilant Hope, two great nonprofits in town, nonprofit in town, that you can invest in them. Please do that because God is telling us something. He says, test me in this. But to those of you, there are a lot of you who every single week, you generously share your offerings with Venture Church. Now, I am blown away every week to hear the stories of life change that are happening here. I just got to sit in a little circle earlier this morning with a group of people uh, that I've been friends with for a while, but I had no idea the impact that just being a part of this church family has made on their family. 
And I think if we could line those people up, and you might be one of those people whose life has been dramatically impacted by Jesus through this community, that if we could line you up on stage time after time after time, those people would say, wow, God is blessing my life. And so to those of you who are being finding trust in God through giving offerings to Venture Church, man, I, I hope that you know that. And my guess is you're also experiencing this floodgate thing God's talking about. It's a pretty amazing thing. And so it's the principle of trust. There's two more that are a little faster. The second principle that I think we can really dig into that we see all throughout the Bible is generosity. Generosity. You know, uh, God is, is generous. Hey, I don't know if you noticed earlier, we said he created the entire world, and then he was like, here you go. You can have it. Have you seen this place? It's awesome. Like, have you seen the Grand Canyon? It's incredible. Have you gone and stood at the ocean? It's amazing. Have you just watched like, like a bird fly? It blows my mind, and God's like, this is yours. Just please enjoy this. Manage this for me. So God is very generous, and as a society, we're very generous people. We give to all kinds of things. And so generosity is something I think we understand and we get. But this, this, this principle of being generous uh, for God is, is big. We're, we can see what Paul says about it. Paul is this guy. I talk about him all the time. He wrote most of the New Testament of the Bible, uh, which is where we find our teaching on Christianity and Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians, he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he says this about generosity. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is a farming metaphor. Not a whole lot of farmers in the room today, I'm guessing. But I think a lot of us are kind of those uh, weekend warrior or summer uh, garden experts. Like you've probably done your, your tomatoes and your cucumbers. So you get it. You've planted seeds. We're smart enough to understand seeds. Uh, a few years back, my wife and I had our summer garden, and uh, I like tomatoes. And this summer, I was like, I want, I want a lot of tomatoes, a whole lot. So I planted like 15 bushes. And if you've ever grown tomatoes, especially those little cherry tomatoes before, you know that 15 bushes, that's like seven bajillion tomatoes by the time it's all over. But I didn't know that at the time. So we're planting these tomatoes, man. And I, you might say that I sowed generously, right? I'm sowing generously. What did I get? Seven billion tomatoes. Like I couldn't not, we couldn't eat them all. We couldn't put them in enough salads. We couldn't can enough of them. We couldn't give them enough to our friends. They all, most of them died on the ground. Sow generously, reap generously. It's a principle that's true in nature, but it's also true with our actions. Uh, one of my favorite movies at the holiday seasons uh, is the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. You know that movie with Jimmy Stewart? Um, if you've never seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, I just want to tell you, what? You haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life? Man, you got to see it this, this Christmas. you got to see it. The main character is a guy named George Bailey, uh, and he lived in this little town called Bedford Falls, and, and George Bailey... He's a generous guy. And what you see throughout the movie is his life of generosity, essentially. I mean, this guy, he doesn't come from a lot of money, but what he does is he loves people. So he's constantly in people's lives, and he's helping people uh, fix their houses, and he owns this little, uh, this little loan service that helps people kind of get on their feet and get their lives started. And time and time again, he sacrifices his own life so that other people can have life. And so time and time again, we find George Bailey, like he's supposed to go off to college or go this big this trip to Europe, and he's so pumped. But he gives it up so he can kind of stay home and help, uh, and help run the, the family business. And then he wants to go off to college and explore and have all these amazing things. But then he lets his brother go to college instead of him. And then he gets offered these amazing jobs and all these amazing cities, but then he turns him down because he's learned that he's fallen in love with his city and the people need him so he stays there's a point in the movie where George Bailey reaches rock bottom you know and, and he just the business that he's been running the family business that he's dedicated his life to keeping afloat I man it, it looks like it's gonna crash and go bankrupt because of a mistake that was made and 
he just begins to think on how worthless his life was. Now, I didn't amount to anything. I didn't get the cool house that I wanted. I couldn't provide my wife and my kids with all the fancy things that they deserve. They're great people. They need all this stuff. And so he's in the pits of despair, but this amazing thing happens. Word gets out that George Bailey is in trouble, and he needs help. So if you've seen this movie, you're starting to get that little, little lump in your throat. You're like, yeah, it's the best part. And so George Bailey needs help, and the word goes out around the whole community, and people are like, oh, George needs help? Man, George helped me with this. I will definitely help him. George needs help? What? What does he need? I will be there. George needs help? What? I will take care of his entire need. And before you know it, everyone in town has showed up, and, and there's this amazing moment where George realizes, though he didn't amass any wealth in his life, because of his generosity, he was the richest man in town. Paul says, if you, if you sow generously, you will reap generously. And this is a principle that God shows in everything. It's not just in our money. It's in our actions of service. Why does it work? Because generosity does this. Generosity puts you in a place of service. It's where you say, look, it's not about me and what I need. It's about you and what you need. I've heard generosity defined as uh, the time when your resources and your finances and your time and your talents, where those things come into contact to meet somebody else's need. That's generosity. And that's a principle that God says when it comes to your resource, when it comes to your wealth, when it comes to your money, be generous. Because I was generous, and in generosity you take a position of servanthood. And listen, if you sow generously, it will come back generously. Because that's just the way that it works. So that's generosity. God wants us to be stewards, and he wants us to be uh, people who will honor his house in the way that he would desire it to be honored. And so I think generosity is the principle there. The third principle, uh, it's, it's not as easy to put in action. It, it might actually be the easiest to understand, but it's probably the hardest to put into action. We've got trust. We've got generosity, and what I want to do is read the, the second part of that verse from Corinthians that Paul wrote and, and then find the third principle. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. God, God is teaching you, like, this isn't about guilt. This isn't about, like, you owe somebody something. This is about state of your heart in that moment. And he says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. The third and final principle, I, 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 try, I battled around with like what to call this because it's a lot of things, but I think it's intentionality. I think that God has given us these resources and he says, I want you to be purposeful with what I've blessed you with. Don't just, we're really bad about just blowing, just throwing stuff out, man. Just blowing money and just, that's why the, 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 the national consumer debt is what $11.4 trillion I shared earlier because we just, we do stuff with our money that's probably not very intentional. And what happens is by being unintentional, it adds clutter to our lives. And that is the very reason why many of us feel like we can't catch our breath financially. Because we're not being intentional with the blessings of God. Instead, we're just, what, pile it on, pile it on, pile it on. I need this, I want that, I'm going to do this. Clearing the clutter, clutter financially is about handling money God's way. And God's way is about intentionality. Paul writes there, you should give what you decided in your heart to give. That's talking about generosity. And, and in that passage, he's talking about one church that's able to bless another church that's in a time of need. But I think that the idea of giving in your heart what you've decided to give is, is deeper than just that financial generosity. I think it comes from a place of understanding. The word we use today is budgeting. 
budgeting, but it's about intentionality. It's about purpose. I was listening to a guy teach one time on um, God's principles for money, and he asked this question. He started the whole seminar with this question. I want to I pose this question to you as well. Just kind of think about it. The question is this. What percentage of your income do you live on? It's a good question. It's kind of like, what do you mean? What percentage of your income do you live on? He said that most people answered the question, well, 100%. I live on 100% of my income. And then he said, well, actually, it's, it's not really true when they say that, because the truth is we tend to live on more than 100% of our income. We, we have credit cards, and we, we finance a car so that by the time we pay it off, we pay $20,000 for a car that should have only cost $10,000. We live on probably more than 100% of our income sometimes. And God said, look, I want you to be purposeful stewards of what I've given you. Be a steward of what I've given you. And instead of living on 100%, which is basically saying, okay, whatever I get, I'm going to spend. I'm going to use. What that does is creates clutter. And in the clutter, if, if you picture this like, like a balloon full of air, there is no wiggle room. In fact, that's the word that you hear a lot of people say when they talk about their budget. We don't have a whole lot of wiggle room in our budget. I think this principle of intentionality could lend us to this place where we say, no, what you do is you intentionally plan wiggle room. You live within your means. You, you, you stop taking on new debt and you do your best to get out of old debt. You work hard to be generous. The problem with lack of intentionality is it actually robs from the other two principles. Lack of intentionality, it, it actually robs our ability to trust God sometimes. Because of the clutter, because of the stress, because we feel like we're drowning, we, we, we panic, and we don't want to trust God anymore, and then we're just, we're up to our eyeballs in whatever's happening, and so that lack of intentionality can rob us from trust. The lack of intentionality can take away the opportunity we have to be generous. Why? Well, I would really love to help your thing that you have going on or help your need, but I live on 112% of my income, so there's no wiggle room. It can rob us of those other two things, and, and so many more. Yeah. Clearing the clutter financially means managing money God's way. And I, I think one thing that God seriously desires from us is that we're very intentional and purposeful with the things that he's given us. To the point that we say, why am I doing this? Is it helping enrich my life towards Jesus? Is it helping other people experiencing Jesus? Or is this just something that I have because it's shiny? It's really some serious questions to think about. I, I do want to say this. It is not like a, I, I feel like I'm giving like a seminar on debt stuff, and I'm not, uh, but there are some really good resources on that. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just throw one out there. There's a guy named Dave Ramsey. If you live in Wilmington and listen to any talk radio anywhere, it seems like he's on the radio like 24 hours a day, but Dave Ramsey, uh, and I think his name's R-A-M-S-E-Y, uh, DaveRamsey.com, he's one of many great organizations that uh, help people get out of debt and give good godly principles for doing that. So if you're in a place where you really need some help with that, check out that website, make it known your card, and we can connect you. There are actually some people within our church who are really good with that, and, and they can help you with that too. And, and you can find some of God's principles to get some of that breathing room back. So, all right, I've given in three principles. Trust, generosity, intentionality. Remember this board game? Like you play it and you get so intense and then you pile up all this money and it's great and like somebody loses and somebody wins and his beer at my house is someone ends up crying and so then the game has to be over. And so, but um, and it's normally me and they're like, dad, it's just a game. And, but you know, maybe you're in that moment where you're, you're laying in, in the ground with all this like pastel money on you and you're like, I'm so rich. But then something happens that I think is pretty, uh, it's pretty relevant to where we're going today. This is what happens. We... We fold up the board, and we sort the money, and we put it back in the box. 
And he goes back in the closet. It was never ours to begin with. And that's just a game. But when it comes to the resources God has given us, he gives it to us for a period of time, and he's like, do the best you can with it. Use it to honor me. Be a steward of my house and take care of it in the way that I would have you take care of it. Because when it's over, man, we just pack it up and put it in a box, and someone else gets to use it. As I think about that concept of finding breathing room, you know, i, I got to be transparent with you here. When, when I talk about money from the stage, um, I'm the preacher at this church, and we're a new church, and I get, I get nervous. You get butterflies in my stomach that talk about, oh, geez, here it goes. All right, you're talking about money. But then I don't even want to apologize for it, and this is why. Because when I talk to you guys one-on-one, -on -one, my friends, what I know is that the reality is finances is a place where we struggle. And finances is a place where it, it pulls our attention away from God. So as a friend, not as your pastor, not as some kind of leader on a stage, I'll even step down here if it makes it feel better for you. <laughs> like, let's get this under control so that we can have this breathing room to experience this amazing life that God has. You know, God wants us to serve. God wants us to love people. God wants us to be able to have this rich experience. And sometimes the littlest things can distract us from that. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't let money clutter distract you from serving the living God. Can I pray for you? God, we love you. And I, and I pray that um, everything that was said this morning was straight from your heart. And but where our treasure is, our heart is also. And I praise you for the community here who has made um, investing in the ministry that Venture is doing in Wilmington a priority for them. And it's where their heart is. And uh, whether it is in their, their money, whether it's their time, these volunteers that get here early on Sunday morning or serve during the week with these nonprofits that we work with. I just, I praise you for that example because it empowers me to say, you know what? It's not mine. You gave it to me and I want to serve and I want to give. Lord, help us to find this breathing room. For us, whether it's the financial breathing space that I think a lot of us uh, strain for, or whether it's the scheduling breathing room, or whether it's the relational breathing room, or it's like a moral breathing room, or whatever the, whatever the clutter that's in our life, Lord, I pray that you just come in and you bowl a strike, and you knock it out of the park for us so that we can have space to connect with you and have our lives changed by the blood of your son, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.